What if the will of God was staring you in the face and you didn't see it? What if the will of God was looking you eyeball to eyeball day after day and you missed it? What if week after week, year after year, the desires and will of God were this close to you and you couldn't see them? Is that even possible? Over the last couple of decades, whether I've been a pastor or a parachurch worker or a preacher or a professor or somebody wishing he had a job. I, uh, when I talk to people about spiritual things, one of the most common themes for people who love God is to want to know what God's will is. I mean, if you love God and you believe God didn't just create the universe and throw it out there and say, well, just do what you want, walk away. But if God provides for us and guides us and lives near us and speaks to us and sets apart good works in advance for us to do and you love God, then you want to know what those good works are. You want to know where that provision is taking you. You want to know the mission he's guiding you toward. Yes? But what if it was so close you could touch it every day and you couldn't see it. Car keys. If you had this experience recently, you need to be somewhere. And you needed to leave five minutes ago to get that somewhere and feel like you were okay or on time. You've looked everywhere they're supposed to be. They're not in any of their places. And there you are standing in the utility room and you call out, have you seen my keys? And they so helpfully, you know, first thing they call back is, have you looked in the utility room? I'm standing in the utility room. Next most helpful thing they say, do you remember where you last had them? If I knew where I last had them, I would have them. And no matter what they say, you can't find it. So until they walk into the same room that you're in, bend over and pick up the keys, poking out from underneath the shoe or something else and say, well, they're right here in front of you. And out you run. Bisquick. You probably all use flour and baking powder. Right? Bisquick. You want to cook something and you're like me. <laughs> Where's the bisquick, honey? It's in the pantry. Of course it's in the pantry. I'm standing in the pantry. Where in the pantry is the bisquick? Up high. I'm looking up high finally come in, move two things, there's the bisquick. Have you, am I the only one who has this kind of experience in their life? Things are staring you right in the face, and it's not until somebody shows up that you can find the remote. You work so hard all day long, you just want to sit down, kick your feet back, and be a fat and happy American watching TV. Is that too much to ask? Where's the remote? not until they show up in the room and reach in between the couch cushions right by where you were sitting, where there's the remote, and they say, well, of course, when you sit on the remote, that's where it ends up. What if the will of God was like a remote or a, a thing of bisquick or a 
set of car keys that's right in front of you. There. And you just can't see it even though you're looking. That's Philemon's story. Now, I know there's a lot of foreign names in here, and um, you may have not read this book before. Here's the good news. You know, you get to go home today feeling pretty good about yourself as a Christian. You just listen to an entire book of the Bible. What did you at church say? Listen to an entire book of the Bible. You could do that again tomorrow morning, you know. What have you been doing at breakfast? Well, I just read an entire book of the Bible. It's nice. It's one page, one little tiny personal letter. But don't let the names throw you. It's really simple. One page. Paul is writing a letter to Philemon. That's not like some sort of lemon paper crust dish. That's, that's a name. Philemon is a leader of a church, and he has a servant, and the servant's name is Onesimus. Paul writes to Philemon. Philemon has a servant named Onesimus. And there's not much mystery in the story. Paul's pretty polite, but he's also pretty direct. Onesimus, the servant of Philemon, meets Paul in Rome, comes to Christ under Paul in Rome. Paul sends Phile uh, Onesimus, sorry, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon in western Turkey, Colossae, sends Onesimus back to him as a Christian and wants him to treat him as a brother. There's the story, done, amen, go home. It's pretty simple. There's no mystery about whether or not Philemon missed the will of God staring him in the face. He did. The whole letter drips with the tone of Paul telling him, you ought to have, you should now at least. I could command you, but why would I need to do that? If you just have love in your heart, I know you'll do the right thing. You love me, don't you? Here's your brother. I love this son. I love this son. Your brother's. It's so obvious that Philemon missed the will of God. Here is a servant living in his house. There's a church that meets in his house. This servant probably served people who were coming to church in his house. And Philemon didn't lead him to the Lord. He had to take a big journey all the way over to Rome to bump into Paul to find Christ. There's no mystery there. Yes, Philemon missed the will of God. It was staring him in the face. The mystery is why? How? How could Paul miss it when it's right there in front of him every day living in his own home? Well, uh, I think preachers ought to every now and then preach things that aren't true. Just makes things more interesting. So, that's what I'm going to do. Does that sound fun? Uh, there's some things that just aren't true about Philemon that I've heard people think or say or preach. I mean, I, I teach preaching. I'm terrible at it, but I teach it. And uh, one of the, I get to hear hundreds and hundreds of sermons all the time. So I've heard lots of things said about Philemon that really, though, if you read the text, they're just not true. So let me teach some of them. So you should take notes on these because it's fun to write down things that aren't true in church too, Right? Embrace your inner rebel. Come on. All right, so the first thing that's just not true is Philemon was a shallow Christian. A lot of people think that. Well, if Philemon was just more mature, he would have done what Paul was telling him to do. If Philemon was a good Christian, a devoted Christian, doing all the practices or the, the, the things we do as Christians that make us good Christians, you know, he probably didn't, you know, he, he probably didn't do his devotions, did he? If he read the Bible and prayed every day, he would grow, grow, grow. I bet he didn't grow. He, that's what it was. 
But Philemon wasn't a shallow Christian. Listen to some of the things it says about Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. Listen to this. Our dear friend could be translated my most beloved son. He's not on the fringes of relationship for Paul. He's not somebody who just comes in at the edges and then leaves. He is a dearly beloved friend to Paul. Keep reading. And fellow worker. There's a lot of sitters in church. There's a lot more sitters than workers. You know that. It's true, right? Don't nod. <laughs> Don't even admit you're listening. But there's a lot more sitters in church than workers. Philemon isn't one of the sitters. He's a fellow worker. He's a go-to guy. He's part of the inner circle. Fellow worker to Afi, our sister, probably his wife, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably his son, scholars tell us, mentioned in Colossians, and to the church that meets in your home. How many of you got a church meeting in your home? He's not a shallow Christian. He's not an hour a week believer. Okay, now, since we're teaching things that aren't true, we ought, ought, also ought to teach you things not to do. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? So, at least it'll be fun for me, and we'll make it through the hour together somehow. So, here's something that you might not want to do, but how to do it. Has anybody ever taught you how to be an hour a week Christian? Here's how. So, you, you make sure you set aside this time. Good job, done it. But what you do is you target showing up in the parking lot five minutes Somewhere around five minutes. Less than that, it might be embarrassing coming in. Uh, more than that, it's too much time. You're going to spend more than an hour, hour and a half. So it's about five minutes. Now, it's very strategic what you do and where you park. you got to come into the parking area thinking right away, right? Sometimes you should case a joint before you show up. So if you're new to a place, kind of case it Saturday so that you know. So you, you come into the parking lot, and what you want is something that's close enough to the church that you can get there relatively quickly. Oh, look out, five minutes. You can get there relatively quickly, but it's also close to the exit. I mean, this is your extraction point, right? So you carefully choose the parking spot, and then you come in with a certain degree of speed, but not too fast. You don't want to look like you're in too much of a rush, but you don't want to go too slow. Oh, look out, five minutes. So you come in, and you act kind of friendly as you're coming in. Because in church, unfriendly people stand out. You don't want to stand out. Make sure you wear things like other people would wear too because you don't want to stand out. So you wear like kind of what they're going to wear and you come in and you're friendly but not too friendly. I mean, if you're too friendly, you're going to get stuck in a conversation. You don't want to get stuck in a conversation. So friendly but not too friendly. It's a razor's edge. Take some practice. You'll get the hang of it. Keep playing with it. You're getting, okay? So then you come in and then you kind of have a parallel experience when you come into the sanctuary. You got to find a spot that's not close enough to the pastor that they could experience expect something of you. Sorry, you blew it, but there were babies you get an excuse this week. Not close enough that they could expect, but not so far away that they might try to, you know, think maybe you need to be brought to the Lord at the very back. Somebody might strike up a conversation. Are you a visitor? So don't sit way back there either. Somewhere in between. And, and you want to be in a place where you probably won't have to move if more people come in. That's, that's helpful. And, and you want to be close to an exit. And then once you get the, the amen finally, you know, would you just say amen already, one comedian said about church, right? Uh, if they finally get to the amen, you quickly stand up, make the, the beeline to the exit. Always be aware of your exits. Just everybody knows that. Be aware of the exits. Go to the exit efficiently, friendly but not too friendly. Make it to the extraction point. Nice. There. There's your lesson. Now, it's an American institution, the hour a week, Christian. We're proud of it. 
Sarcasm is my love language. Sorry, it may not be yours. This is me loving you right now. We may be shallow Christians. Philemon wasn't. You can't get people in and out of your home in an hour. Some people just don't understand the game. They just don't get it. No matter how many times they keep coming to this church thing, they still think it's about relationship and friendship and going deeper and growing and all that. You can't get people in and out of your home in an hour. You know what it's like when you have people over. When you're a host or a hostess, the night before you're thinking about it, getting things ready. The next morning, everybody's complaining about how much there is to do to get these stinking people in your home. And then afterwards, you've got to clean everything up. I mean, this is like, this is a big deal. And every week he does it. Philemon is not a shallow Christian. Second thing that isn't true that I've heard people say, Philemon is missing part of the gospel. Philemon's just missing part of the gospel. A little while ago, there was a book uh, written, I think Richard Stern, is that the name? Uh, you might recognize it as soon as I hold this up and make you hungry. This right here. Did you, do you remember the cover of a book that looked like this? There's a hole in the gospel. Did you read that book? You heard about it, some of you, the hole in the gospel. The idea being that um, back in maybe the 1920s, uh, the house that evangelicals grew up in went through a divorce. It was just a tragic situation. Tragic situation where our parents, evangelism and justice, ta-da, evangelism and justice got a divorce. And we had to choose which house we were going to live in. We are going to be with mom or dad. And you had to live there the whole time. This is kind of the experience of most Christians back in 1920, 30, 40, 50, 60, and continues to some degree to this day. And the hole in the gospel for evangelicals was justice for people who were poor, justice for people who were oppressed, social justice. We even hate the term, ah, if you say social justice, you're a liberal, we don't want to even have you over for coffee. You won't leave. It's an hour a week. So the, the hole then... Justice, other people just have the whole. If they went to live with the other parent, all they have is doing good. Let's do as much good to as many people as possible all the time. So one house didn't have justice, one house didn't have evangelism, and that's the idea of the book, and to a great degree it's true. But often what happens for people when they find this out is they just switch houses. And evangelicals used to be embarrassed about doing good. Or what are you, a do-gooder? We won't get to heaven by doing good. It's by Christ's sacrifice for us, right? We would be embarrassed about that now. And I'm watching this happen in church. I'm speaking directly to you. Now we're embarrassed by evangelism. Switch thousands. That's really yummy. I went to Poppy's Donuts Friday morning at 7 o'clock, and they were out of extreme Persians. Shameless plug. Which of you is going before 7 o'clock in the morning on Friday eating up all the Persian donuts? Quit it. Everybody knows those are the best. Not the puffers, the holes. Not the donuts with holes in them. They're cheapness. The ones as big as your head that have no hole. But Philemon doesn't have a hole in his gospel, and he isn't left with just the hole either. Let me show you how I know from the text. Verse 7, 
Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. There are other little detail points in this text that give hints. Paul is speaking around the edges of things, but the hints are pretty clear. When he speaks about refreshing the saints, that's a phrase Paul often uses for those who have participated in the great collection of the offering to help the poor in Christ who didn't have food in the middle of persecution and famine. There was a great need among people who had less than Philemon. Philemon gave. When he talks about people who are partners, it's the same language we still use. I'm a prayer partner. I'm a sending partner. I'm a giving partner. Some people go. Some people send. I'm not called to go, so I'm sending. Paul says, I wish you were actually here with me, but since you're not, I wish Onesimus, your servant, could stay with me and take your place. Onesimus was probably sent with money to Paul for his support, maybe with a private letter in there to to send him for sale as a servant, and that money could continue supporting Paul. Who knows? But Philemon was giving to causes of justice and compassion. Philemon was giving to causes of mission and evangelism. In his own home, he was leading a church that was caring for people financially, materially. The church was the center of compassionate work back then. Read Acts chapter 2, sell a piece of land, bring all the money, lay it at the apostles' feet. That's how the church worked. He was caring for people in his own home. He was leading people to Christ in his own home. There was no hole in the gospel, and he wasn't just left with the hole. So Philemon wasn't a shallow Christian, and Philemon wasn't missing some part of the gospel. So now the mystery is even more mysterious. We know he missed the will of God staring him in the face. But now we still have to ask why. How? If he's not a shallow Christian and we can't write him off that way, and if he's not an unjust Christian or a non-evangelistic Christian and we can't write him off that way, how did he miss the will of God? If he gets the will of God in general, if he's living the will of God almost always, why does he miss Onesimus? There's some clues in the passage that that might be the reason. Uh, Onesimus might have been irritating. He's a house servant. It sounds as though Philemon is done with him for one reason or another. So have you ever worked with somebody who's irritating? Are they sitting near you? Is that why? Maybe you're not admitting. Have you ever worked with somebody who's irritating? You know that person that just annoys everybody? They say the wrong thing at the wrong time, or they're always complaining, or they're always negative. They seem to talk too much. They use up all their chips in the meeting and keep talking. Or, or, or maybe they're, they're the ones that backbite people, or they, if they don't get their way, they're going to throw a big fit, and they'll throw the fit over email, or they'll throw the fit, fit to you in phone, or they'll throw the fit to you over the coffee machine. Or they have a hobby horse they always get on they can never get off of, and you think, oh, I just don't want to hear so-and-so talk about that for the next half hour, and you kind of dodge them. Nobody works with somebody who's irritating? I don't. I'm just empathizing. You know how hard it is to work with somebody. What if they were in your own home? He's your house servant, and maybe he didn't have good manners, or maybe he just didn't have good grooming. Maybe he was, you know, we used to call it good breeding, that you would just relate to people. It's a terrible phrase. It's a prejudicial phrase. But they don't have good manners. They frustrate us. They irritate. Maybe he was just irritating, and Philemon says, I don't even want to go home anymore. 
Send him off. Maybe he was irritated. Maybe he was incompetent. Look back in your passage. This might be closer. Who knows? Verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, a play on Onesimus' name, which might mean useful. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. Maybe he was incompetent. There are things that house servant's supposed to do, and he just couldn't seem to do them right. He blew it. Maybe he was always spilling the wine when he was supposed to be filtering it. Maybe he broke too many vessels to make it worth even having him handle the vessels. Maybe he was supposed to keep the books, the accounts, and he kept missing ledger points or misadding. Servants sometimes ran finances and lost his master money. Have you ever dealt with somebody who's incompetent? Some of you, you're really professional people. You can forgive almost anything except incompetence. Because that just keeps biting you. Maybe he was immoral. Later on in the letter, farther down the single page, later on in the letter in verse 18, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, Charge it to me. Maybe Philemon stole. I mean, Onesimus stole from Philemon. Maybe Onesimus embezzled. Maybe Onesimus committed a crime. We don't know. He could have been irritating. He could have been incompetent. He could have been immoral. We're not actually sure. One thing's certain, though. Onesimus is in a social position and a social role Philemon typically ignores. People in that position, people in that role, either get those things done or don't get those things done. They get those things done, you don't pay attention to them. You sure notice them when they don't. He was beneath him. Below him. Do you have anybody in your life who irritates you that doesn't know Jesus? Do you have anybody in your life that you look at them at work or you look at them in the world and you think they're just incompetent <laughs> and they don't know the Lord? Is there someone that you keep bumping into over and over again, and you know what? They just do things you know are wrong. And Christ isn't their Lord. When you go somewhere to get food, do you know those people's names? When someone works in your yard, do you get to know their story? When someone fixes your roof, is there ever an opportunity for a conversation? When you're going to the sports leagues, is it only about the game? Who are your Onesimuses? I really think the American church is in deep trouble. Every single Christian community in North America is shrinking, except for evangelistically focused groups, and they aren't growing much.
Go find the statistics. We used to define a regular church attender by someone who would go three weeks out of the month. We now define it as one week out of the month. The Midwest is sheltered a bit and buffered from what's happening, the waves that are hitting America. But go ask somebody in Portland, Oregon about the status of Christianity there. Go ask somebody in the inner rings of New York City about the status of Christianity there. Talk to anybody from Canada and ask them how Christianity is doing there. The church in America is dying. My friends who work at seminaries and theological schools all across the country, they're facing mergers and closures of theological schools left and right because the churches that used to be feeders to them and support for them are also dying. There's no more churches for people to actually go pastor. The few that are con continuing, they're, they're, they're funded by endowments left by rich people a long time ago. If they had to depend on the number of people in the pews, they couldn't even pay the pastor's salary if everybody tithed. Some friends who got their doctorate seven years ago were going to go work at a school, worked at a school as a teacher of preaching. Within two years, they were let go because most of the seminary was let go as it combined with another one. I've had people who have published 25 books on preaching, some of the most famous preachers in the world, send me letters saying, are there any jobs? It's worse in Europe. It's a big deal, this Onesimus thing. Over the last eight to ten years, I've heard every possible means of, of, of sharing the plan of salvation with people made fun of from Christian pulpits. Whether you love the four spiritual laws, and as soon as I say it, some of you might roll your eyes, or you love the bridge model, or maybe you got led to Christ through the Roman road, or you had some sort of spiritual conversations model with specific questions you would ask. I've heard every single one mocked in evangelical pulpits. I had a friend recently say to me that he felt some urging that maybe he should share Christ with someone he knows. <laughs> and he said, but I'm not that guy. <laughs> and I wanted to ask, what do you mean that guy? You mean a Christian? The evangelical church in America used to be embarrassed of doing good. Now we're proud of doing good and we're embarrassed of evangelism. When was the last time we invited someone to church? When was the last time we actually opened a Bible and said, can I share with you from Scripture how you can be saved? When was the last time we took a risk? Maybe they'll reject us. Maybe we'll be embarrassed. Are we so worried about being respectable in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of churches that are dying elsewhere that will no longer share the name of Jesus? Am I? This isn't a small deal. This is a big deal. Do you have Onesimuses in your life? I'll just share with you the plan of salvation that I've led the most people I've led to the Lord with, and I do it kind of half-baked. I'm sort of a half-Christian, but I, I can tell that it seems that God's merciful and half seems to be good enough. So I'll just give you my half version of the Roman road. And if you ever use Roman road, you know that one, right? So let's, let's see how many of these verses you know. Romans 3.23. Who knows Romans 3.23? Say it. For all of sin, fallen short of 
the glory of God. Great, there it is. So you open, you, you don't even have to open your Bible anymore. You know, when I was in college, we had this duct tape New Testament in our back pocket all the time. That was the cool thing to do. You don't even have to, now you have your smartphone that's cracked all over the front. That's the version. Just pull it out, show them Romans 3.23, say, read that out loud. After you've had a relationship and you've built time with a person and spiritual conversation has happened and you sense in your spirit that you could ask, has anybody ever shared with you what, what I'm talking about, what it means to be a Christian? I mean, that's what I am. Has anybody shared with you? Do you understand? Would you like me to? You just show them Romans 3.23, say, read that out loud. They read it out loud. You say, what does that mean? They're always right. I've never had a person get it wrong. <laughs> Smart people, those non-Christians. You wouldn't think it. Romans 6.23, anyone know what that one means? What it says? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, and we always say, no, no, no. yeah, go, keep going. There's good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23, read that. What do you think that means? They always get it right. Romans 10.9. Scroll. Romans 10.9, do you know that one? If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, say it really loud. Yeah, we'll be safe. So believe, believe <laughs> go, go memorize Romans 10, 9. If you don't memorize it, just look it up on your phone. If we, if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Christ Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. Now, they always get that one wrong. So, because we do too. It's not just a formulaic prayer. You can lie to God in a prayer. Jesus, your Lord, and then go live the way you want. There's no magic prayer. It's not like some sort of incantation that, you know, Expelliarmus! <laughs> oh, you didn't say it loud enough. Expelliarmus! Expecto Patronum! You know, there's no magic incantation. It's a heart transformed by the Spirit of God living in us and are allowing that heart to be transformed. And when the heart is transformed, it says words like that. Where you confess that Jesus is Lord, meaning it's true. You're going to follow what he says. And that you believe in your heart that really there is a God. His name is Jesus. You can't fake that with God. You can fake it with me and I'll leave you alone. But you can't fake it with God. So you explain that. And you say, well, where are you at with that? Is that something you're interested in? Usually if they've listened that long. I mean, very often they are. And if not, it's kind of like what Denzel Washington said in Remember the Titans. It's like Novocaine. Just give it time. And if they're willing to pray with you, pray right then. It's not rocket science. And you can make fun of it. And some of you will maybe go home and make fun of it. You're welcome to do that over dinner. Remember my sarcasm is my love language. It's okay. I'll actually feel loved. Make fun of me. My daughter did what I was preaching today. When I said sarcasm was my love language in the first service, she leaned over to mommy with her tongue in her cheek and said, I love it when daddy's preaching. <laughs> See what she did there? Sharp kid. If you don't have a better way, well, use my lesser way. I often feel like I'm half an evangelist. But what could God do with a good one? If you know how to make it better, go make it better. But if you don't, well, don't demean what's working, even if it ain't perfect. People don't know Jesus. And we have material goods 
that we could use to influence them to know Jesus. We have relational networks that we could use to influence them to know Jesus. If they came to know Jesus, we could act in ways that serve the justice in the world and open doors for them that wouldn't have been opened otherwise. It's the great danger of the gospel. You come to Christ over time, generationally, on average, you get richer. When you get richer, you get more comfortable, and you start ignoring Onesimus. I grew up in a trailer. We made our own soap. We sewed our own clothes. When I came to IWU, the only way I afforded it was it was a full scholarship because I worked my tail off in school. I accepted Christ two weeks before I came here, right after I tried to commit suicide. And I looked around me and I said, man, these people are rich. And I noticed these last few weeks as I was praying over this and wrestling with this, I've stopped seeing the people who are like who I used to be. Man, it sneaks up on you. And if you think we can delegate this to Bo and Sia, can I just rebuke that in the name of Jesus Christ? Just because someone's gifted at evangelism doesn't mean those of us who aren't gifted at evangelism get a pass. They don't know the people we know. Who's your own nest?